Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and our guest today is Julia Shopik. She's a patient advocate, health writer, and creator of the award-winning blog, HonestMedicine.com. Her columns and articles have appeared widely in the national press, and her mission is to inform people about little-known but promising treatments and to empower them in making healthcare choices. Today, we're going to talk about her concept of honest medicine and the story behind her Amazon best-selling book, Honest Medicine, Effective, Time-Tested, Inexpensive Treatments for Life-Threatening Diseases. Welcome, Julia. I'm so glad you're with us today. Oh, Miriam, I'm so glad to be with, with you today. Thank you. You know, there are so many important themes in your book that we need to cover that I think we have our work cut out for us this hour. All righty. <laughs> Let's start with your intention in writing this book. The phrase, it ain't necessarily so, comes to mind. Yes, it does, doesn't it? <laughs> now, I'm not positive of, the, of exactly what, what you're talking about, but I think that I'll interpret it to mean that what your doctor tells you ain't necessarily so. And he or she may have the best intentions, Miriam. Mm -hmm. But the thing of it, it, the the truth is that maybe your doctor does not know about a treatment that would be better for you than the ones he or she knows about. So that's what comes to mind for me. Exactly. I actually took it out of your book when you were talking about who you wrote this book for. And you were very careful to say that you're not... Um, you know, running down uh, allopathic medicine. You are just hoping to get people to wake up and inform themselves because there are forces within the medical establishment and, you know, the, the, the drug, the pharmaceutical company, medical establishment interaction comes to mind that may not be in the patient's best interest. So that's what we're going to be exploring. That's exactly right. That That's what, what I'm getting at. Now, you were in PR for 25 years when your husband fell ill with a brain tumor. What was your experience in dealing with this that made you become such a passionate patient advocate? Well, you know, I wish I could tell you, Miriam, that I became an advocate right away, but I didn't. And what happened was, you're right, he was diagnosed with a very serious cancerous brain tumor. He, it was in 1990. He was uh, 40 years old. I mean, we, we hadn't even been married that long. And he was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And for the first, I would say, few years, I actually, and he did too, we actually went into lockstep and did exactly what the doctor said. And, you know, surgery, it was, the, it was a tumor the size of an orange, so surgery could not be avoided. Um, and he did chemo, and he did radiation. And then I began to notice, you couldn't miss it, that he was getting every side effect and complication from the, uh, from the treatments, not from the tumor. They had excised the tumor. They had taken the tumor out. But I began to notice, and he did too, as I said, that he was getting every side effect, every complication. I said, you know, if I want this man, my, my dear husband, around for any length of time, and I did, I better start doing some research. And I did. 
And I found a nutritionist that whose area was cancer and her air and her personal interest was brain tumors. So she was fantastic. Her name is Dr. Jean Wallace. And she had Tim go, she changed his diet and no sugar, you know, very clean, good foods, a lot of organic. And she also had him take a lot of supplements. And lo and behold, he started to feel better, to look better. And what surprised me, Miriam, was that the doctors were not at all interested in what we were doing. And I neglected to say that they had given him three years to live. He was now living four, five, six, seven. He ended up living 15 years. So that's 12 years beyond their their predictions. Mm -hmm. And wouldn't you have thought that they would have been interested in what is, because they freely admitted that he was their miracle patient. And it was an astrocytoma three. I don't know if that means much to a lot of your listeners, but to some who have lived with brain tumors, it, it, they know it's very serious. Mm -hmm. But then in 2001, his tumor did re recur. And this was at the time that I decided that something happened that made me decide that I was going to spend the rest of my life trying to educate people, trying to change the way people relate to the medical system. What happened was that his suture line, he did have a surgery for the recurrence, you know, for the second tumor. And I had a very bad feeling. You know about gut feelings. I know you do. And I had this horrible gut feeling that he should not have the surgery. I even went and made an appointment with the doctor without my husband. And I said, you know, he's had problems with his skin not healing. And he's, his skin was radiated in 1990. I have this awful feeling, doctor, that his skin is not going to heal well. And the doctor said, oh, pshaw, or whatever they say. <laughs> and he said, no, it's a piece of cake surgery. Well, it might have been a piece of cake for the doctor, and it was, but my poor husband's skin did not heal along the suture line. And they ended up doing eight additional surgeries. I have to say that slowly because it's so painful for people to think about this. Eight additional surgeries just to find two pieces of skin that would heal. They even went and took, they took gobs of skin from other parts of his body, you know, to try to graft them. Mm -hmm. And with each surgery, he got sicker and sicker and sicker. I mean, he had walked into the surgery telling jokes. Remember I told you that he, that he had been keeping very, very healthy as, mm -hmm. as much as he could? Mm -hmm. He ended up, after the eight surgeries, being bed-bound, incontinent, and, mo and mostly paralyzed. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I found through a doctor that I was doing some PR work with. It was not my client. I was working with him, with this doctor, an integrative doctor, on a project that for on behalf of one of my clients. And the doctor knew me, and he said, how's your husband doing? And I just said, terribly, you know, just terrible. And he said, have you ever heard of Silverlon? And it's, it's spelled like the word silver with L-O-N at the end. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said, what? Silver? Who? What? And he told me about Silverlon, that it is pieces of material with silver ions impregnated into the material. And when, when moist and put on non-healing skin, it 
causes the skin to heal in many, many cases. And he had used it on diabetic wounds and, and burns. He said, I don't see any reason why it wouldn't work. It's, it's FDA approved for all non-healing wounds. So I used my PR skills and I got in touch with the president of the company who, by long story short, by the next day, we put Silverlon on Tim's head. He was in the hospital and at that time, of course. And uh, it was a miracle that they even let me, and I, I stress let me, put Silverlon on Tim's head. And it worked. Within 48 hours, you could see, well, actually within one day, you could see that it was not opening up and it got better and better, and his skin healed, and he, till the day he died, the skin never opened again. But the thing that made me become a patient advocate was that the doctors, I thought they'd be excited, Miriam, because this is a, a problem, you know, non-healing skin after... Sure, sure. And instead of being excited, the doctors were very strange. They were not interested, would be putting it mildly, but one doctor even came over to me, and he was a doctor who had liked me before this. And he said, I don't think it's what you found. And he had the accent on you mm -hmm. that worked. And I said, very naively, what do you think it was? It is. You know, I was puzzled. To me, if, if you put something on and it heals for the first time, you know, right after it, that's what worked. And he said, no, no, no. I think it was the vancomycin. That's the IV antibiotic that Tim had been, that my husband had been on for six weeks at least. <laughs> and I said, he said, I think it was the, it was the vancomycin, he said. And I said, but doctor, he's been on the vancomycin for at least six weeks. And he said, yep. And he furrowed his brow and he said, vanco is like that. It kicks in. Mm -hmm. I was speechless. And that was the day I said to myself, you know, when I have time, you know, I mean, for the next three and a half years, I was taking care of my husband because, you know, he was much sicker than he had ever been. And he never did regain mobility or, and he was severely brain injured by now, which he had not been earlier. And I said, you know, there are treatments. They've got to, well, I knew there are treatments that the doctors don't know about. And I, I, I guessed, I intuited that there were a lot of others. And I decided to put together some very convincing treatments first on my, on my website, on my blog, honestmedicine.com, and then in a book also called Honest Medicine. And the three treatments, I think, are there. You, I, I noticed that you, that you kind of concentrated on the word inexpensive. I love the fact that these treatments are inexpensive, but they're also time-tested. They've been around for at least 25 years, and uh, they have tremendous backing, you know, tremendous success. And uh, I chose three treatments. And uh, so this is what I've been doing and promoting. And uh, the beauty of it is that every time I'm on the radio, Miriam, people actually call me or write to me, uh, Julia at honestmedicine.com, and they say, how can I get, most of the requests are for the treatment called, called excuse me, called low-dose naltrexone for autoimmune diseases, because there are so many autoimmune diseases that it, it, it's wonderful for so many people. But they also write to me about Silverlon, they write to me about intravenous alpha-lipoic acid, and definitely about the ketogenic diet for epilepsy. Well, we're going to go into those in more detail but 
you know, a, a couple of things come to mind. One is why are the doctors so resistant to, um, to exploring? And, and, you know, it's, it's not a hundred percent. There are open-minded doctors. And in fact, um, some of the developers of your, uh, uh, of the treatments that you cover in the book were medical doctors, are medical doctors. Absolutely. But, but there, there's like this logic tight compartment, which when I studied psychology is a symptom of paranoia. But they, they absolutely refuse to allow for the possibility that something outside of their, um, uh, formulary, something outside of the way they've been trained could actually, oh, oh, and something that has not been through double blind controlled clinical trials could actually be effective. Yeah. You know, you put your finger on it with, with the word trained. As Dr. Bert Berkson says in, in one of the, in one of the chapters that was contrib- he contributed to my book, he contributed a chapter of his own and an introduction. He talks about the fact that doctors in medical school are trained and not educated. There's a difference. Training is like in the army. You know, one, two, three, four, follow the leader. To think and to be educated is something far different, and that's what you're talking about with curiosity. Uh, training does not have curiosity associated with it, but education does. And this, I think, is one of the reasons. Another, you know, there is the financial concern, but I hate to think that doctors would just not be open to something. I know it's true in, in many cases, but it really, it, it kind of hurts me to even think that. But I do know it's true. They're, you know, all, all their education comes from the, from the pharmaceutical reps and also from the articles in their journals. And a lot of these articles in the journals are, are written by people in the pharmaceutical companies. It's a vicious cycle. But training is the key word here. Mm-hmm. You know, it is such divine timing that Dr. Sanjay Gupta, you know, the, the TV CNN's medical specialist, is releasing a new documentary this week about medical marijuana. And the extraordinary thing that this very high-profile neurosurgeon says outright in the PR, you know, promoting the film, is that we have been lied to by our government he did, and he he specifically mentioned the CDC. Yep. I couldn't believe it. I heard him, you know, and he said, I believed those, quote, studies. I think he said, quote, studies. He said, but they just weren't true. And he also pointed out, and this was just fascinating to me, he pointed out that the CDC has been... Um, uh, prohibiting the use of marijuana, uh, partly because it has no known medical benefit or no proven medical benefit. And yet the, the FDA or the CDC, the FDA, I believe, actually holds a patent on an application of marijuana in the case of brain tumors or, or brain malfunction. Right. And, you know, he said, when I discovered that, you know, they've been lying. And it is a very tough pill to swallow 
that the government that you feel is supposed to be protecting you, be, be looking after your own interests, is actually not. I know. And you know something? When I saw Sanjay Gupta, I have not yet seen his documentary, but when well, I saw him... It's aired this week on... on well, Friday. it's also online already. Oh, really? Yeah. I can send you the link after, all, all, you know, afterwards. Somebody okay. sent me the link. And we will but, post the link with this interview. But thank you. But I would love if you know any way that we can get a copy of my book to Sanjay Gupta, because now is the time his mind has opened. And wouldn't that be wonderful if he now allows a few other treatments in? Mm -hmm. When you say now is the time, I have the feeling that that people are just waking up. It, it's like your book is a, a harbinger of spring. Your book is saying, we need honest medicine. Wake up people. Uh, educate yourselves. Be your own advocates. Don't take this lying down. So let's, let's get, get into some of the stories. You told us about the story of Silverlawn. Um, why do you think they didn't know about it? Was it a new development? Oh, now this question, I, this is so, you know, I, I, I just am shaking my head, you know, because would you believe that Silverlawn was used in other departments of the hospital, right next door to the neurosurgical floor? It was used, I believe, in the plastic surgery department, and yet the two departments did not even speak. Wouldn't you have thought that that they would have been speaking, you know, that, that neurosurgery would have said, we have a non-healing wound here, plastic surgery. What do you know? Uh, it's just, it, it's, it's, it's a conundrum. Mm. Oh, well. Okay, so now in, in some of the these other therapies, you've come to know the researchers behind these treatments as well as patients with direct experience of treatments. Which Which treatment shall we start with? Well, I would love to start with low-dose naltrexone, um, partly because um, I'm, I'm actually writing another book about low-dose naltrexone, totally devoted to low-dose naltrexone for diseases other than the ones that I, that I profiled in the book, mm -hmm. but uh, also because I just, you know, I, I just think that it really could say it could save so many lives that are being tortured with a lot of these expensive uh, toxic treatments that they're using for conditions such as multiple sclerosis, lupus, oh, Crohn's disease, and uh, fibromyalgia, rheumatoid arthritis. I could go on and on. There are like, you know, there are hundreds of, there's at least 170 known autoimmune diseases. So may I tell the story about how it came to be? Absolutely. Okay. Naltrexone was a drug that was FDA approved at high doses for alcohol and drug addiction in the mid 80s. I believe it was 1984. And a very brilliant, brilliant Harvard educated psychiatrist and neurologist was working with drug addicts in, in New York City, in the New York government, uh, local government. And so he was around. He saw, you know, the naltrexone that was being approved. And it did not work so well, or he didn't think it did, 
for alcohol and drug addiction because at the high doses that it was FDA approved for, that's 50, 5 milligrams and higher, it did have side effects. But I don't know how he intuited it, but he did. This is Nobel Prize kind of thinking in my mind. He noticed that it affected, that naltrexone at high doses affected endorphin levels. And uh, he said, hmm, I believe that if I gave it at very low doses, it would work on the immune system. And I'm not a scientist, Miriam, I'm not a doctor, but he went by his gut hunch, you know, educated and, and following his gut. And he, a, a friend of his daughter's was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And he, there were no MS drugs at the time. You know, this is mid-80s. So he said, let's, let's give her a very low dose of this naltrexone. And he gave her three milligrams and uh, taken, taken once a day at night. And her MS, her multiple sclerosis, stopped progressing. Wow. And he just, you know, this, this was before the internet was real po popular, right? Yeah. And the word just spread that this man is having terrific results, you know, with autoimmune diseases, first with multiple sclerosis. People came to him from all over the country, then all over the world, and he, start, he was treating people with lupus, with fibromyalgia, with Crohn's disease, with rheumatoid arthritis, oh, with ulcerative colitis, with all of these and more, and sarcoidosis. And all of them, not every single one, this is not snake oil, but a very good percentage were having excellent results. In the case of multiple sclerosis, they were having the, 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 uh, their disease stopped progressing. In some cases, I'm now interviewing people for my second book, and I have spoken with, with one woman um, who's going to be contributing her story, and uh, her lupus has literally turned around. And another one with Parkinson's has definitely turned around. Now, it's not, as I said, a miracle. In times of stress, they will have a relapse of some of the symptoms, but their, their, their basic uh, health is so much different since they found low-dose naltrexone. So considering that it is so inexpensive, and um, I'm going to be conducting some teleseminars in the fall, and I hope that some of your listeners will want to be put on my first-to-know list because the teleseminar is going to be entirely about low-dose naltrexone, and one of the main components of this teleseminar, phone seminar, will be how to convince your doctor to mm -hmm. write a prescription for it. Because mm -hmm. I'm convinced that if the information were presented in a more impressive fashion that we could get more doctors uh, prescribing it. On the other hand, there are, the patient advocates have put together a list of doctors around the country and around the world who will, who will prescribe low-dose naltrexone. But wouldn't it be nice if we get more doctors, if people could stay with their own doctors and still get this wonderful treatment? Absolutely. So that's my, that's and, my and, aim. And tell us what the difference in monthly cost is. Oh, gosh. You're going to just, you, I, you know, I okay. Let's take one of the MS drugs. And I spoke with somebody just yesterday, 
And her doctor, she wanted to go on low-dose naltrexone. And her doctor said, let's put you on Galenia first. That's the newest MS, multiple sclerosis drug. That one happens to be at least, this is the low one, $5,200 per month per patient. I like to pause when I say that because that's astounding. And, and low-dose naltrexone, depending on the compounding pharmacist who makes it for you, is somewhere around anywhere from 20 to 30, 40 max, $40 max uh, a month. So it's, a, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's laughable. It I don't, really you know, and that the doctor said that. I mean, I was, I said, oh, no, because there have been studies, Miriam, of how it, well it does. That, that's another thing. There have been small studies on, uh, about uh, of low-dose naltrexone. One of them was done at Stanford on for low-dose naltrexone for multiple sclerosis, uh, for, excuse me, for fibromyalgia. Another one was done at the University of California, San Francisco for multiple sclerosis. And Crohn's disease, there were a few studies done at Penn State. And this is, to me, startling that the doctors will not even, you know, budge. So I'm conducting teleseminars to help them budge. (laughs) Good for you. By the way, have you heard of Dr. Terry Walls? Yes. Oh, I can't believe you're saying this. Go on. Well, I interviewed her uh, about her book, Minding My Mitochondria. And she's, right. uh, she's this medical doctor who, who reversed her MS on the basis of a diet. I know. And was it basically paleo or no? It was basically paleo. It was very, very high in, in greens. Yeah. Because I've, I've been asked, I'm in the process of talking with a local nutrition group called the American Nutrition Association, or perhaps doing a teleseminar mm-hmm. in next year or the year after on autoimmune diseases and low-dose naltrexone. And they're looking to have a doctor do it with me, talking about diet. And I was thinking oh, of... Get, get, get Terry Walls, absolutely. And I will use your name with her. You bet. Okay. <laughs> Great. But you know something? To me, this is considering the applicability to so many people. And I was on one show. It was an overnight talk show mm-hmm. recently. And it's one of the most high, high traffic, you know. And I got 400 um, emails, at, uh, you know, and most of them were about low-dose naltrexone. Some of them were angry. I never, ever heard of this. I've been going to my doctor with fibromyalgia, with rheumatoid arthritis for years. Please, please, please send me information. Some were just upset and some were excited. You know, they ran the gamut, you know, mm-hmm. but all of them wanted information and, and I answered every single one. I hope, I hope I didn't you know, miss anyone. You, go, go back to the story of your husband, and let's recall how his condition improved dramatically when he was put on a clean diet. Yeah. I mean, we, we just don't pay enough attention to what has happened to the American diet and the, the disaster that it is causing in our public health. The it's absolute just- disaster. You walk into a supermarket, it's like, except for that little green island in the middle, it's a nutrition-free zone. You're right. 
And you know what upsets me even more or just as much, not even more, is that the doctors just are not educated about diet. I mean, how many times have you heard of a cancer patient being given Ensure or Boost, which are both highly caloric, highly sugared, uh, you know, meal substitutes? And uh, this is just not right. You know, that they that not only don't they know about it, but they don't in many cases don't want to. So it's it's a terrible thing that's happening to our food. Yeah, yeah. Let's you've you found a significant difference in attitude between European medical practice and that in the US. Is it all based on socialized medicine versus the profit driven motive here? Or do you think there's something else, cultural? You know what? Um, the person who pointed that out in, in my book was a woman named Beth Zupik-Kenya. And um, what she was basically talking about, she says exactly what you're saying, that you know she is the dietitian. I can tell this story, too, about the ketogenic diet for, for childhood epilepsy. And she was hired, I'm sort of backing into the story, by Jim Abrams of the of the Charlie Foundation to train doctors throughout the world and staff more more dietitians than doctors on how to administer the diet and she says boy it's a hard nut to crack in the United States because of big pharma they want to give drugs the doctors want to give drugs for children to children with epilepsy and she said in other parts of the world not so much you know they're very very open Mm-hmm. So to me, this is this is sad. I don't know if it's socialized medicine or what, but there is not as much of a profit motive in other parts of the country. No, no doubt about it. And in, in uh, Europe, for example, there is a ban on GMO yes. uh, products in food. There, uh, whereas here, there has been a backdoor initiative by Monsanto to give them a get-out-of-jail-free card um, in Congress for any deleterious effects that might show up in the future from ingesting GMO foods. Isn't that awful? And you know, one of the big shots of the FDA is from Monsanto. Oh, and there's I a revolving he, door there. Yeah, yeah, I believe his name is Taylor. I hope I don't get sued, but I'm quite sure that's his name. And uh, it's, it's just, it's, it's very, very sad. Because um, you're right, they, this country does have a financial, it, it's financial concerns just running a lot, of, a lot of things having to do with our health. Well, you know, we, we talk about big business and then we've seen what happened on Wall Street with the, uh, uh, you know, the mortgage oh. refinancing and the, we don't want to go there, but we know that they do not have clean hands. No. Um, And we as a society have to reflect on what is the good of the individual. And, you know, you can talk about viewing corporations as individuals. I mean, that was the slippery slope. That was. Um, We have to bring it back into the human model and say, um, put profits secondary to the good of your clients. And you know, this to me is the beauty of the treatments that I've, that I've chosen because my, my point in the book is, hey, 
if what your doctor is giving you is not working, do your own research. And here, I'm showing you some treatments that can work better and that don't have a profit motive. God knows they don't have a profit motive with something like 20 to $40 a month. I mean, who's getting rich, you know? Yeah. Not, not so much. But uh, you've got to do your own research. You've got to stand up for yourself because nobody else will do it. Well, let's go back to um, uh, epilepsy. And, and I mean, there, there are some heartbreaking stories in your book about the, the baby that was given phenobarbital. Oh, God, Julie, Julie McCauley. Oh, no, I met her recently. Oh, my God, what a wonderful young lady. Uh, still, by the way, has eye problems, blind in one eye. But uh, basically, the story of the ketogenic diet, I often start crying in the middle of talking about it, so <laughs> I hope I don't. <laughs> because you're right, it's heartbreaking. What? But I have to say, the one person in, you know, the one hero in this book that is not a doctor is a Hollywood producer, writer, director. His name is Jim Abrams. And I don't know if you remember the airplane movie, that silly movie, that funny movie with Leslie Nielsen. Mm-hmm. Um, Jim is the guy who made that movie. Okay. And uh, so he was very into, you know, funny movies and all of that. But then in, in the mid-90s, 1990s, something not so funny happened to Jim. And that was that his baby son, Charlie, was diagnosed, well, he he started to have intractable seizures. That means seizures that just won't quit, that go on, you know, one seizure stops, the next one begins. There were hundreds of them a day. And he says our our household was filled with tears. People would, we would, and we went to the best doctors. And he puts, now, of course, he's saying that ironically, you know, because Mm -hmm. he, 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 he had money so he could go anywhere and money was no object. And he had prestige, you know, and he was in California, for gosh sakes. And the doctors kept putting him on little Charlie, the baby, on more and more drugs, more and more. Jim says that at one point, little Charlie was on four or five medications at the same time. And in my book, In Honest Medicine, there is a link to a video of little Charlie with a harness around him, a baby, trying to walk. And the harness is around him because he was literally bumping into walls because he was so stoned. And uh, Jim, you know, the doctors basically said, okay, the next step is a brain surgery to try to get the seizures to stop. And, you know, we were just, we don't know what to do. And Jim went to the library and he says, I was not going to the library the way I would today, you know, to find something different, you know, to help my son. I was going to the library to try to find some, to try to find a way that my family, he had two other children and a wife, were going to deal with a baby who just was not going to get better. This was the way that they were given to feel, you know, that mm-hmm. little Charlie would never get better. And what does he find when he's in the library? He finds out about a diet called the ketogenic diet, a high fat low-protein, low-carbohydrate diet that has been around and since the 1920s. It was used at, at the Mayo Clinic, at Johns Hopkins, and he was like, wow. And there were small studies in every decade. If you want to write, if any of your listeners want to write to me at julietonestmedicine.com, I can send you the links to those studies that Jim has shared with me. And showing that the ketogenic diet works, and I believe it's between 60 and 70% of children. 
-hmm. and he 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 took the, all these studies to his doctor, to Charlie's doctors. He said, let's do this. And the doctor said, no, 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 don't even go there. It won't work. And Jim said, to my everlasting shame, I listened. And I let them do a surgery on Charlie's brain. And right after the surgery, he started having seizures again. And Jim said, enough. And he took Charlie to Johns Hopkins. He and his wife, Nancy, took Charlie to Johns Hopkins, and he was put on the diet, and 40 hour, 48 hours later, the seizures stopped, never to return again. <laughs> this is where I start crying. Yeah, yeah. And Jim, at first, he was over the moon with joy, and then he got pissed. He, <laughs> said, he said, you know, anger could be a good thing, Miriam. <laughs> He said, why did it take me this long to find this diet? And by the way, how about other people who, who would like to find the diet? Well, it, you know, remember I told you he was a Hollywood uh, producer, director, writer? Mm -hmm. Well, he was able to get Meryl Streep to do an instructional video about the diet. And uh, he started an, an organization called the Charlie Foundation, C-H-A-R-L-I-E Foundation.org and to educate people about the diet, to get the word out. And he got Meryl Streep to do the instructional video. And one of the people who was on the, who was working on the video said, boy, you know, he, oh, he had another job with, with, uh, MS, with NBC, Dateline NBC, excuse me. And he said, boy, this is a good story. <laughs> and so Dateline NBC did two, a two-part story on Jim Abrams, the ketogenic diet, and little Charlie, and that's when all heck broke loose. Jim had so many letters that he had to have a room for them. Wow. You know, my child, oh my God, thank you, God bless you, you know. And one of the people who wrote a letter was, uh, was Jean McCauley. And remember little Julie who, who got a side effect from, from phenobarbital? Mm -hmm. So she was one of the ones. Another one was a woman named Connie Intermitty. And she actually had had her child. She had a success story if her child was put on the diet. His name was Tim Intermitty. And, uh, but she had had the same hard time getting the diet. So Jim said, I'm going to make a movie. And it's going to be about the ketogenic diet. And guess who played the mom? Meryl Streep played Connie Intermitty. And uh, it was a made-for-TV movie called First Do No Harm. And uh, it's a wonderful movie. You, uh, people can get it off of Amazon.com. I love this movie. And uh, it's just a success story of what one man can do. He would be, he would say, no, it wasn't one man. I had a lot of help, but literally I want to find a freelance writer who will write a, a, an art, a story in a major magazine called the man who changed the face of pediatric epilepsy. Mm -hmm. uh, ironically, the example that Sanjay Gupta gave in his interview uh, was yeah. the use of marijuana in childhood epilepsy. And guess what? It was Dravet syndrome, which is a very difficult kind of uh, of of, um, of uh, seizure disorder of epilepsy. So I can't wait to see it, to see the movie, to see the documentary. Excuse me. You know, one of the the core elements that I think the the whole drug culture 
um, is going so wrong on is that it is focusing on individual symptoms and treating an individual symptom, an individual receptor, and ignoring the rest of the individual. We, we are whole beings. We are complex, interrelated systems. You're right. And you know what? This is one reason why. You put your finger on it again, Miriam, because this is one reason why these treatments that I write about are, are so suspect uh, with the medical profession. For instance, the fact that low-dose naltrexone could, and in my book, in Honest Medicine, David Gluck, who was Dr. Bahari's childhood friend, Dr. Gluck, writes a chapter explaining that low-dose naltrexone literally tricks the body to raise endorphin levels, and it, it helps the immune system, it orchestrates the immune system, and it works in a way that the drug companies and doctors are just not used to. Mm-hmm. It does not take a symptom. You know how with so many people, God, senior citizens are now on 14, 16 uh, oh drugs. God. I know, because one drug is to stop the side effects of the other drug, and then there are new side effects. You know, don't, uh, don't get me started. But these, these, uh, these uh, treatments that I write about, I mean, can you think of a, of, of a treatment that's inexpensive that works for so many diseases? Mm-hmm. And then the ketogenic diet, I want to announce here that there are studies, and this is very, very exciting, being done on the ketogenic diet for ALS, for Lou Gehrig's disease. Really? Mm-hmm. I know. And that may be my third book. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, Jim says, and he's absolutely right, you know, whereas LDN, the science and the, and the, uh, and the evidence is there. Do you know what I mean? Loads of people with, with Crohn's, loads of people, you know, but... Yeah. Soon, the evidence. Oh, and a, a researcher named Thomas Seafried. Oh gosh, and I write about. I have him in my the appendix of, at Honest Medicine, and I, I can send links to that. He has done studies on glioblastomas, which are brain tumors, one degree higher than what my husband had. The ketogenic diet for glioblastomas, and it's being shown to be very effective. Wow. Wow. So part of the reason I think why my husband did so well for so long was that I kept sugar out of his diet and the ketogenic diet. He was not on the ketogenic diet, but it has no sugar. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's my suspicion. Let's not uh, forget to talk about intravenous alpha lipoic acid. Yes. That is Dr. Bert Berkson, the person I spoke with you about, I, I told you about, who, to, who says the doctors are trained, not educated. Mm-hmm. He sure learned this the hard way. He was, when he was an intern, and it was a very prestigious hospital, he never, he never mentions it. Uh, I know which one it was, but, but it's not in the book. You know, we don't go public and, and say that. He was an intern. And he, two people came into the hospital and they had mushroom poisoning, which had just shut down their livers. They were, they were in, in dire liver poisoning. And he was told, I know this is hard to believe, Miriam, but it's true. He was told that he was to watch these people die and take notes and then present them at grand rounds, you know, to the other doctors to see what the dying process was like for liver failure. And he says to me, and he says, whenever he's interviewed, he goes, I just couldn't do it. You know, I couldn't stand. I had to try 
And one thing about Dr. Bergson is he had had a PhD before he got his MD. So he had learned about curiosity before going to med school. Mm-hmm. So called the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, and he said, boy, he talked to a Dr. Fred Barter. He said, is there anything that can regenerate the liver? And Dr. Barter said, as a matter of fact, we're doing studies on something called intravenous alpha-lipoic acid, and we're doing it for diabetic neuropathy, you know, the the lack of feeling in in Mm -hmm. these studies. And we're finding that it's regenerating organs, like especially the liver. And it's like, do you want to try it? Dr. Burton said, absolutely. So, so it was air lifted to him. He infused it into these two patients. They are still alive today. This is, this is 30 years later or more. And uh, as a matter of fact, if you look up Dr. Berkson's book, The Alpha-Lipoic Acid Breakthrough on Amazon, one of the reviews of it is written by a woman named, named Eunice Goostre, and G-O-O-S-T-R-E-E. She's the woman who was part of the couple that whose lives were saved. And uh, so they're both alive today, doing well. They're elderly now. And, but then the next week, Dr. Oh, so anyway, Dr. Berkson got into tremendous trouble for doing this. Wouldn't you have thought that the doctors would have been delighted? Not so much. They were furious at him. And they told him, don't you ever do this again. You use something that wasn't in our formulary. And he said, well, are you interested in what I did? <laughs> they said, no, just don't do it again. <laughs> you know? it, it, it boggles the mind. It but really does. Yeah. The next weekend, more people came in. I'm laughing. It's not funny, but it is funny in a kind of ironic way. They came in with liver poisoning, another couple, and he gave it to them, and they too survived. Oh, that's right. They had eaten mushrooms. Oh, yeah. He says mushrooms were in full bloom in whatever city it was that he was in. It was in the Midwest. And uh, so the doctors were furious. But here's what saved Dr. Berkson, because I'm here to tell you, and Dr. Berkson readily says this, if he had had no one championing him, he would have definitely been thrown out, you know. But Dr. Fred Barter was excited. The NIH sent people to to interview Dr. Berkson. And as a matter of fact, they were invited to talk in Germany. And they did a study, which it's in in Honest Medicine, in my book, uh, a link to the study of 79 people with end-stage liver disease who were given intravenous alpha-lipoic acid. 75 of them survived. And so he was a very lucky guy that he was not thrown out, but he knew that he better get the heck out of institutional medicine because <laughs> it, it just, you know, they did not allow for creativity. Mm-hmm. So he is now practicing in a solo practice. He now has his son, Arthur, with him. For many years, he was solo um, in Las Cruces, New Mexico. He's a happy guy, and uh, he's giving intravenous alpha-lipoic acid. You want to hear another irony? Yeah, is also one of the chapters in my book was was contributed by a man named Paul Marez, who walked into Dr. Berkson with with end stage uh, pancreatic cancer, stage four. And Dr. Berkson used intravenous alpha lipoic acid and oral low dose naltrexone. Doesn't that make a nice little tying up of (laughs) of and the story? The end of the story is that he survived. He survived. He has since died, but he lived nine years with pancreatic, with, you know, with no signs of pancreatic cancer. 
And pancreatic cancer is considered one of the most uh, extreme, you know, hopeless types of cancer. Oh, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. Another person in, in my book, in Honest Medicine, is Mary Jo Bean. And Jo had a combination of hepatitis C and cirrhosis. And she's very quick to point out that she didn't get those in any of the ways. <laughs> <laughs> it was through transfusions. Carry on. Our time is uh, coming to a close. And I want to finish the story. But anyway, she she found Dr. Berkson, and she's just uh, the one of his biggest advocates. She just, you know, people write to her and call her all the time, and she mm -hmm. even, yeah, she she helps them get to Dr. Berkson. Well, Julia, you are doing such an important, wonderful job in waking people up. Uh, first of all, to these four very important um, therapies, treatments, but also to getting people to do their research. Thank God for the Internet. And apparently a lot of the people you quote in your book say, thank God for the Internet. Well, so they all, all, I can, all I can do is refer people further to the Internet. How do they find you, Julia? Okay, they, I, I have a website, honestmedicine.com. I have a book, which I hope, I, you know, people, I, I hope they'll get it because they'll see how people have survived with these treatments. It's also called honestmedicine.com. It's available, by the way, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and for those of, of, of your listeners who are like ebooks as a Kindle and as a Nook. So, and it's going to soon be on Smashwords as well. Great. Um, and they can write to me at julietthonestmedicine.com. Isn't that a bit repetitive? Everything is honest medicine. Well, let's try and get medicine honest. I That's think this is, this is an idea whose time has come. Julia, thank you so much for being with us today, my dear. We've been speaking with Julia Shopik, patient advocate extraordinaire, author of Honest Medicine. Julia, thank you. Oh, Miriam, you're the best. Thank you. You'll find Julia's book and all the links she mentioned on our website at ncreview.com, along with hundreds of other illuminating books, films, reviews, and interviews. That's ncreview.com. Well, next week, our guest will be me, Tracy McCormick, talking about her book, My Kitchen Cure, all about the healing power of foods. And now we're going to close with our track of the week selected by Scott Johnson of the Positive Music Association. It's called Live in Love by Sky Nelson. I'm going to live in love. I'm going to do what it takes to let go. I'm gonna take my seat and let love run the show. Everything that I look at, I get attached. But I'm not gonna give weight to the wounds of my past. And it's me that will lose if I choose to resent what I have. But since I've got another chance, another chance, I'm gonna live in 
That was Live in Love by Sky Nelson from his album, The World Ocean. Sky's approach to life reflected in his music is the art of living in the present, allowing solutions to challenges to flow effortlessly, and building relationships that are filled with joy. You can learn more about Sky on his website, skynelson.com. Sky is a member of the Positive Music Association, a growing group of musicians who use music not only to entertain but to make a positive difference in people's lives and in the world. You can learn more about the PMA on their website, positivemusicassociation.com. Now I have a question for you. Do you like to write? Do you have strong opinions about the kind of books and films that we cover on NCR? Well, we need you. We're looking to grow our team of reviewers for New Consciousness Review. And if you're interested, email us at reviews at ncreview.com. Well, I guess that's just about our show for today. I'm so glad you joined us, and I hope you'll join us next week. 
Until then, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.